and I was and I was invited back very quickly. Um, obviously, I graduated in '95, and I and I taught my first class in the beginning of '97, um, and then stop, start, stop, start, and then taught in earnest um, without stop from '98. Um, and so I was, I, I, but even in those in those the tiniest of gap between 95 and 97 i'm seeing yeah i'm speaking to yeah i'm coming back to the school a bit um, and we were were in conversation um and and then obviously it became very clear um that i was going to come teach alongside him assist him um and then when he retired and people can't see i'm doing air quotes i don't like to do air quotes uh, retired was something that that happened to them rather than was a choice of any sort um they were forced to retire from drama center um he retired in 2001 um and was was dead by the following summer by june 2002 within an academic year within a school year which uh, now doesn't seem much of a surprise um uh, because there was nothing for him to do. There was nowhere for him to go. Hello, everybody. So this morning, I'm delighted to be talking to James Kemp. James Kemp is an actor and a, a teacher and formerly a colleague of, of mine at the, at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Um, James is somebody who I, I got to, to know and like and respect as a, as a person and also became very aware of the effect that his work was having on, on my students. I was in a completely different classroom. We never we never talked together. Uh, we never worked together as director and coach or coach and director. So um, so what I understood about James's work came through what I could see in the students and the ways in which they had vocabularies, working vocabularies, physical and sensory vocabularies that I could um, uh, use and uh, synthesize in various different ways. So anyway, James is, is, a, is, a, is a fine teacher, and he's going to talk to us about one of the four corners or one of the four pillars um, of the Drama Center training that Annie Tyson spoke about in an earlier podcast. Um, James's specialism is uh, the, the, Laban, the work of Laban as applied by Yat Malmgrim. So this podcast will be at least um, considerably about the work of, of Yat so uh good morning good morning james good morning how's it going how are you in in lockdown two how's lockdown two going for you it's going okay a little frazzled at this stage lockdown one i i took to um with great <laughs> felt you know duck to water and everything um being socially distanced is something i've attempted my entire life and and suddenly i had the perfect excuse um and and you know teaching online was a novelty and so it, it was relatively kind of pain-free, um, and maybe some of the work that I teach lent itself to that. Now the novelty is certainly worn off, and I'm um, finding that yeah, both both the the online a little kind of demanding and uh, affecting of brain capacity and power, and then actually the the weird fears of going back into rooms with people, not fear of actually um illness. Uh, actually, just that, yeah, the social interaction again, um, both desiring it and and kind of a little bit disturbed by the intensity of it as well. I was I was invited to a, a conferency online academic thing, one of those things that lands in your your inbox, um, some somewhere in the world, uh, and it, this in the next week or two, and it was about the relationship between 
studio work going online and then online going back into the studio. And I, and I thought that's actually, I might go to that because I've been finding that too. It's, you can make an adjustment, you can sort of figure out a way and then you end up with these strange sort of parallel pedagogies and, and you're sort of in a room with people teaching like you're on Zoom and, and you're on Zoom teaching. It's very odd. I mean, and it's fine. Like you say, you can always make do. You can always do something useful with people. So there we are. So the beginning of lockdown two, you're not in your shed. I was looking forward to being in your shed with you because you, you, you teach from a shed. Is that, I, is that correct? Well, it, it, I've ended up there. So I've been reduced to shed teaching. Um, uh, it, it's, I say it's a pleasant shed. It's, you know, I joke that it's at the end of the garden and that gives an idea that the garden is large, but the end and the beginning of the garden are, are very, very <laughs> close in proximity. And it's a 10 by 8 little kind of shed with, with, with windows and books. Um, and, and I perch in there with a internet booster that, that mostly uh, works. Um, and, and I started lockdown one, I was, I was here where I am now, which is in, in my living room, which, um, and then the dog decided that, that Zoom was not something he wished in his life. Um, or, or, or me on Zoom specifically. And so he began, he began to be um, distracting to, to a point of, you know, disaster. Um, and so I, I was relegated to the end of the garden. Do, do, you, do you ever have a, a, a mug of tea and a cigarette and stand in the doorway of your shed as it rains? Have you ever tried that? I, I haven't tried that. As a, as a non-smoker, the, the, it, ah. it, it hasn't happened. But it, it, the idea is lovely. Um, and, uh, and I've sort of had teas and coffees and sort of perched whilst whilst it was raining in between things and, and, and listening to cats fight on the roof of the the shed. Good. So James, tell us tell us a little bit about about you, about your your trajectory from um well, I suppose um uh, young person with dreams and aspirations to to drama student to actor. I, I think you were an, you were an actor and then your journey into teaching. Um take us on that take us on that trip. Sure. I mean, like like many people, the the teaching element is is an accident, um, not not an aspiration. Even if it then becomes who you are and, and what you do and a vocation of sorts. Um, early on, I mean, I had a kind of relatively circuitous route to drama school. I went to drama school at, at twenty one, having not, I was going to say tried and failed things. I didn't really try. Um, I I just wandered through my youth like many. Um, always interested in in drama. Film in particular, theatre a, a, a little later, uh, and long story short, uh, upon getting a proper job and deciding that this wasn't for me at, at nineteen, I, I went headed back to sixth form college. Um, Could you give us a year? When when was it? Yes, I can. I can give you. I can give you the year I started at, at Drama Centre, which is ninety two. Um, at twenty one, so so come nineteen ninety. I'm thoroughly bitten by the drama bug, um, which kind of, you say, just crept up. I was always fascinated by film. Um, and I think at the back of my mind, it, it was not an option. It wasn't something that, that I knew anyone you know, did. But, but I kind of liked the idea of, of wanting to direct first and looking into film school directing, especially back then, the, the cost of it, um, the, the likelihood of getting in, all these other things kind of were prohibitive. Um, and and I was working in in a bank uh, and started to. Luckily, the bank was in Dorking. Dorking is is not a, a grand place. I think it's famous only for the birth of Laurence Olivier. Um, but it, it does strangely have a performance arts library, or it did. Um, and and I would go at lunchtime and and get books out and start reading, you know, 
my life in art by Stanislavski, but bizarre things, but also, you know, books on Robert De Niro or, or whatever. Um, and, and so thinking that, that film school wasn't going to happen, I'd go back to college, six one college, um, redo things I didn't do properly the first time with an eye to university and film studies of some sort. But by the time I got to my college for two years and did theater studies along with sociology and media studies and whatever, um, uh, I, I got kind of dragged into the theater. I had a very good teacher who I'm sure is no longer with us, Esther Weatherall, I'll, I'll name check her now, who I believe had been to both RADA and Central in her time. Um, and her time was some time before she knew me, but she was kind of remarkable, a real old stager, um, a, a grand dam. And, and uh, she used to direct regularly at a, at a very prestigious uh, amateur theatre. And so whilst doing my studies, studies, I got thrown into a couple of plays. Um, we did The Rivals one year and then the following year I played Lorenzo in Merchant of Venice. Um, and and somehow the acting really took over and something I didn't see as, as possible. I thought, well, you know, actually, it was strangely an easier route. Um, and so university kind of faded on the horizon for me and drama schools came into focus. And so Jay, education. just briefly, just to, to, um, to give Esther a little bit of, a little bit of space. I, I like, I like it when we meet people like that. Can you remember something you, she, she told you or, 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 or modeled for you? What was something you got from Esther? Let's start with your journey with, with Esther. What was her surname? Weatherall. Weatherall yes. And, and she Esther Weatherall. Rygate, local to me. Yes. It was a kind of wonderful name and, and, and yeah. pre-internet. So, I, you know, whether, whether she ever arrived somewhere in the, in the, sort of the hinterlands of, of the internet where you could look her up and find out what yeah. came of her. Um, I, 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 she obviously ran this theatre studies course at East Surrey College um, and directed amateur productions on the side. Um, her husband, whose name escapes me, used to design them. Um, and it was did beautiful pictorial backdrops for them. Um, mm. And uh, and her classes were extraordinary. And the, the biggest thing was 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 young me kind of um, kind of wanting to be a, a wild young actor, trying to absorb everything. Um, she certainly wasn't Stanislavskian. Um, I liked the idea of Stanislavski without necessarily knowing very much about it. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the big moment was if I, I did a scene very well by her standards and her provocation was, that's all well and good, James, but I don't believe you can do it as well again. Um, and uh, which, which was a great kind of um, provocation to me. And, and so I said, can I do it again now? I'll do it just as well. Now, whether I did or I didn't, it's kind of almost neither here nor there. Um, she she was right. I know she was right on one level that that I had I had no craft, that I had no uh, no ability to to do it as well again outside of copying my result. Um, and so she was the first person that kind of instilled the idea that that there was something else going on. Um, that that the idea of consistency, of repetition, of of a devotion to being able to achieve each and every time was something that was necessary, beneficial, especially for a stage actor. That's a great story. I like that story a lot because it, it's her observation is, of course, probably accurate and a good note to give. What was it she said? The exact wording? I like it. She said uh, that, that, that was great, but uh, but I, I I'm sure I'm sure you you won't be able to do it again. Yeah, and then I really like your 
the magnificent sort of arrogance and, and chutzpah of a young actor to go to go well I think I can I mean that's and that's those two things are sort of perfect in teaching aren't they the sort of the the honest experienced observation and then the sort of deranged confidence of the of the young which has its own sort of poetry and and possibilities so that's that's brilliant so that's great okay thank you so much so we can we can leave Esther in Rygate, is that right? In Rygate, yes. And and so, I mean, she got a number of us into drama schools, you know, and, and saying so it, it was a transformative couple of years there. Um, and and then all I wanted to do was go to drama school. I fell in love with the theatre. I went to the theatre a lot. Um, I, I remember bumping into some old school friends um, when I was going up to see probably The Seagull at the RSC, Terry Hans's production. So this circa 91 and they were all going off to football which i used to do with them and and one of one of the, the guys who never seemed sensitive but but probably was a bit sensitive asked me very quietly why do you go to the theater um <laughs> to which i said for the same reason that you go to the football um that that this i i probably wasn't very eloquent but the idea of a, a narrative unfolding in front of you and a, and a connection to 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 others, both in the watching um, shared experience, but also, of course, of the people that you observed um, on these stages. Um, and uh, and he kind of, yeah, nodded sagely and thought, well, still not for me, but, but yeah, mm. why was I going to the theatre on my own? Who knows? Yeah. I was reading Peter Eusenos, um, one of his biographies recently, and he, you know, he went to the, um, the London Theatre Studio, Michel Saint-Denis' London Theatre Studio, and, and is fairly scathing about it in his book. I mean, the book is funny, so it's it's satirical and he's in that register, but he's, he's quite naughty about it. Um, he does say he got some got some stuff from it. But he he says in that chapter, very he says very sort of explicitly, he says he's realized that acting acting is sport, theatre is sport. Mm-hmm. It's a form of sport. And so that that makes sense with your I'm, I'm still thinking of, of, of acting as an athletic endeavor. Um I've used mm-hmm. that term and and there's there's something about that. And I don't mean that, you know, you have to be this incredible physical specimen, but, but let's not mm. pretend we're not using our, our bodies. Um, and, mm. and that idea of the use of the body. And I mean that in the whole term of the body, you know, up to, up to and including your specialty, you know, what one does with one's voice. Um, and there's, there's an, say, if not an athleticism, it is an athletic endeavor. It is not a purely cerebral intellectual thing. Um, and we can fall into that trap very easily. So you you're going to the theatre. You're um, not going to the football. Not going to the football. So, although you know that that get, that gets me through now. Um, football gives me something to talk about in most pubs. Um, back when we we're allowed to go back into them, um, and I and I and I realise that talking about acting or theatre is is not something which um, goes very far in in the average public house in this country. Um, so all of it leads to going to audition at drama schools, which were my, you know, very first auditions of any sort in, in my life. Um, and the interesting thing about Drama Centre was it wasn't on my original list. My original list was probably mainly made up by es- Esther, who was kind of old-fashioned. We, we hit up the, the biggies, the Radas, the Lambdas, um, Guildhall. Um, strangely, I didn't apply to Central. I, I couldn't tell you why. Um, now but i but i didn't um and along the way as i went to these various auditions stories started to happen in um, the waiting room as people as as the you know prospective students 
discussed, oh, and where have you been? And how did that go? And this, that, and the other. Um, I kept hearing drama centers. Probably the first time I ever heard it was in a waiting room at another school. Um, and, and, and kind of hearing the, the horror stories, if you wish, but not really. I mean, there, there, there was, there was a, a, a prurient interest that everybody had. And have you, have you tried and, and what are they like? And some saying, no, I, you know, I'm scared. And, and others saying, oh, they're, they're mean or, or whatever it may be. And there's this tough school. And, and so my ears pricked up at, at the sound of all of this and kind of immediately did, did my research, um, applied for, for a prospectus, which is how you did it back then, uh, got it, read it, and and thought, hmm, maybe this place is for me, um, and and applied. So it was it was added to my to my list. So my list of five went up to six, um, and uh, and it started to in, intrigue me. Do you think just just stepping a tiny step back before we before we move on to your audition and and your time at the drama centre? Something I've always been curious about, and this week we don't need to talk about this for very long, but just because you mentioned it, do you think Central's reputation, and I'm sure this is full of inaccuracies and 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 I don't know why this happened. It's something I'd like to understand is is if we think about the early 20th century, and obviously it's, it's RADA in Central, Central and RADA, and in some ways you could probably argue Central's a more thoroughly um, coherent school. It's actually got some ideas. I mean, you know, RADA has wonderful actors, of course, and wonderful teachers. I'm sure, but there's something sort of messy about Radus. Still, I think I often wonder what it is or what what, what its what its ideas are. But Central had one, and brilliant actors, and and those are the two great schools. And then somewhere, somewhere in the I don't know, the somewhere between 1950 and 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 now, Central's reputation is more complicated. Was that something that was going on? Do you think that's why you didn't apply? Could you, it's, it's really in any way, sort of vague? I, I could answer later. I could answer why uh, better than at the time. Um, I, there was there was a, a kind of a gap um, in for me going, and it's strange because I say I'm pretty certain Esther went to Central later, mm. um, re, retrained or trained again, or she wasn't a voice teacher, so she didn't go back like many um, to to mm-hmm. expand the voice and speech and, and, and explore that. Um, I think she trained as an actor twice. Um, I, I don't know. Later on, um, strangely, again, it's interesting talking about the, the rumours about Drama Centre and how tough it was. I think they went through a stage, and they may have gone through it for quite some time, where their audition wasn't very friendly. Um, where, where, and I would hear this a lot, when I was sitting on the panel at Drama Centre over many, many years, you would ask the, the, the non-leading, quite innocuous question, oh, how have your auditions been going? Where have you applied? And the place that would tell a story, you know, the, 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 the amount of times individuals told a story about Central in a negative sense, they had a bad experience at audition, that they felt it was a bit cattle cally, they felt that they were kind of treated a, a, a little poorly. And, and this is this is pre, this is pre, um, you know, people... Uh, being offended very very easily um, and and so i started to hear that a lot later so at the time i, I can't quite pinpoint why it, it wasn't on this i mean partly um there was a monetary factor that that once i'd kind of given myself a fair chance at five or as i, I think six in the end um uh that the money didn't have the money you know didn't have the money to audition to another place which again it was cheaper then than it became later but you know that's relative. You know, you know, to people, and I had to get to go to London to to do all these auditions and everything. So it it was 
probably on the next list. I mean, I, I had a friend, a contemporary who I was at, at college with who ended up going to uh, Guildford School of Acting. I didn't apply to, to Guildford. He did. He applied to various things. He, he, he was a tiny bit younger than me, and, and some of them told him, you know, wait a year, come back in, in a year, which is quite a regular thing in those days. Less so now because they have multiple courses to, to fill up. Um, and he, he probably did audition at Central. Did you talk about, was the term accredited? Did people talk about accredited schools? Yes. Was that, a feeling, yeah. was that something in the air? That yeah. was a big issue back then, absolutely, yeah. In, in, in the early 90s, you, you would look at that list. Yeah, the, the others, it was, yeah, it was a big kind of learning process, but mainly I was going for, you know, the pretty prestigious schools that were accredited, and that was important. The idea, of course, was how do you get funding? Um, what had become discretionary grants the, the discretion was, well, they would sometimes use it to say no. Uh, ultimately, I didn't get mm. Um You did? I was, nope, nope. Um, and that's a whole other kind of little story where, where, again, I'm beholden to the powers that be at Drama Center for getting me through, and to Anthony Hopkins, ultimately. Mm. But that's a whole other thing. Mm. Did you have to audition for your discretionary grants? I know that was a yes. thing that happens sometimes. People would go to their local council offices. and Did you do yes. that? I did, I did, wow. um, and and he again. Interesting, bringing Esther back into it. Uh, Esther was at odds with the lady who ran um, the, the 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 council's uh, program where you would audition, and supposedly they had like twenty to give out, and I think it literally was twenty, and that was dance and drama, so it was across any of these discretion, discretionary. So obviously, plenty. If you went to regular university back then, um, you it, it it wasn't discretionary. You know, you got a a grant pretty much um, and a living grant of some sort um, here you would apply to it and say different rules up and down the country but it, my understanding in Surrey which is where I grew up um, was there were 20 um, of the people that got into drama center three of us got in um, uh, from Surrey and they gave the other two grants um, now Esther mm. always believes in conspiracy um, and and believed that this lady was you know I, I probably didn't stand a chance um, mm. The whole process wasn't very pleasant. I would I'd certainly say that. And you, go to, you go to Guildford. I'm not saying going to Guildford is unpleasant, but uh, there, there was something that, that you felt like you were jumping through an extra hoop, that you proved yourself at a, a high level. And I know drama centres have supported me. When I got refused, they wrote many letters in support saying, you know, we really want this guy. Um, he, he, he's auditioned. He's already proved himself. You know, can you see fit to to find another space but at that point you know the horse had bolted um and and i didn't so the other two guys who were lovely people both got fully funded and and i mm. went off to drama school with the idea that, that the money would run out at the end of the first year is that a wound that still still festers um I'm kind of okay about it because because I think I ended up at the right place and because they then supported it put a certain pressure on me. I mean, I, I was very aware. Um, so my my dad, after kind of going, what the hell do you want to go to drama school for? Um, which seems very reasonable, you know, having out th those fights. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you'll never make any money again, which now of course seems very reasonable. Um, he he ultimately said, okay, fine. He'd much preferred me to go to university. Had I done, I would have been the first person to go to university in my family, um, my extended family. Um, that then took another generation because I never went to university. I went to drama school pre-degree awarding. Um, and so I got a, a diploma, which is worth exactly the amount of paper um, it, it, it took to print it. Um, 
but it's not, it's worth something else, you know, in, in educative purposes, of course. Um, but yeah, he, he had just about, and I know now how tough it must have been, he could stretch to help support me for a year. Um, and and when and he was my guarantor, which is how it would work. Uh, you know, drama schools cost a lot more than universities. He, on his guarantors sheet, they'd have you know that you'd guarantee for three years, and he crossed out and signed and put one year. Um, that so he was letting them know, and he you know it was, we were very upfront that that I had enough funding from home that would get me through a year, as long as I also you know worked whenever I could, um, and you know just to support myself which is which is what I did and and putting it kind of to them I went in with the pressure of if I could prove myself to them they may find money they weren't a, a rich school they weren't a rather they weren't a supported school in that sense where you know they, they had established um, places to go people to go to um, uh, but but there was a kind of not a promise but a, but a hint that if I if I proved myself, that they may be able to see me through. So what was the audition like for the drama centre? Um, it, it was undeniably the most remarkable of, of, of all the ones I went to. Um, they, they traditionally haven't done um, recalls. They did them, they do now, but back then under Christopher and, and Yat, they, they didn't apart from one at the end of the year. So I, I didn't get a recall. Most people didn't. So it's a kind of a one-time deal, which is kind of interesting pressure of sorts, but, but also kind of give, gives you a chance, like a, like a game of football, like a knockout competition. You're going to feel, oh, maybe, maybe actually I'll, I'll be better off in this circumstance. Um, it was, yeah, a, a crazy, wonderful building. I still live stone's throw away from it. Um, so it feels like this is, this is my manner. Um, but going there for the first time, you, you wait in the room like anywhere. It's incredibly tense and nervous. And then, then you go through this kind of little back door into what was known as the church. Um, and it was the main church of the, the Methodist building that it, that it once was. And there's a little dais of which you act upon. And then there was, unlike most places where you'd get two or three people on a panel, um, that was pretty standard. Most places I went, there were seven. Um, um, and you know, table extended table was like three tables worth of, of people. Um, I now know where they all were, and I ended up on that panel a number of years later. Um, there was always two students, one at either end, um, and and then five members of staff with Christopher Yap and Reuven kind of at the centre, and then somebody else and a, and a voice teacher. Greg DePolne was the, the voice teacher back in those days. Um, and so he was on the panel. I, I remember all these things. Um, and then every so often there was when I went in, right at the very back of the, the room, the church, um, third years were allowed to sit in and watch because they could learn from it. Um, the, the students on the panel were always second years. Um, and the people who would usher were second years as well. That was the tradition. Um, so there was two second year students. Again, I didn't know all this at the time, but I knew there were students. And so there was a little, a few little third years at the back. Um, and then I came in and... Uh, you had a set list in those days. So you were given half a dozen classical speeches to choose from, um, which is, again, standard other place. I think Central did, did something similar, certainly for, for a long period of time. Um, and I, I went straight for Shakespeare. I now know, actually, I'd have been better off going for the more obscure ones. You know, Drama Center had a great tradition of, of the classics being really wonderfully diverse, you know, across the Jacobeans and beyond into all sorts of nooks and crannies. Um, I did Hotspur, 
from Henry the Fourth, Part One, um, and and I think magnificently dried after the first word, and then again at the end of the first line. But I think I got away with it. Um, <laughs> I do. I used to know it. Strange. I used to know how it how it began. Um, it talks about his 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 his. It, it is something. It's like an O or an or a my or something like that. And 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 it, it's it's certainly like and that and and I said that, and then went fuck in my head. Thankfully, um, and 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 then completed the line and then had another kind of little hiatus, a little pause, and then continued. Now I think ultimately my understanding is they they thought that I'd I'd taken the Laurence Olivier option of doing it with a stutter, which famously I know he didn't know at the time. Famously, when he'd played Hotspur. Um, he'd looked up, you know, about Henry Percy and, and Henry Percy supposedly, you know, and again, it gets mentioned in Shakespeare, it was thick of tongue. Um, and so, so they, I think they, they thought I was doing thick of tongue. Um, I was more thick of brain than, than thick of tongue is, is what I was achieving. Um, nay, that's the opening word, nay. Nay, then I cannot blame his cousin King that wished him on the barren mountain starve. So I stopped after nay. I cannot blame his cousin King that wished him on the barren mountain starve. Then another nice big breath pause, and then I managed to to find what I'd now call free flow, um, and 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 got through it. You know, for for good or for bad, got through the the the, the piece. He's talking to his father and his uncle. Um, uh, then my my next piece was Tom from the Glass Menagerie, a big speech where he's talking to his mother, and it ends with you know um, taking the piss out of her and her. Seventeen gentlemen callers and Blue Mountain up, 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 all that, and 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 I did that, okay. And, and as I s- began to step down to to join in this kind of seat um, that that looked very frightening with these seven people in front, Christopher, who's kind of I'm really hearing for the first time, um, said, uh, "No, no, I want you to do it again, but this time." It's not your mother. It's your dog. And she's a basset hound called Emma. Um, and I'm going, oh, shit. Um, and, and take, take your time. Change the set um, when you're ready. And, and you kind of hear this take your time and change the set. I didn't quite know what to do, but I, I shifted something around because he'd said it, you know, I, you know, so I thought I, I'd just move something, you know, to, because he said it. And the take the time sounded more, more threatening than anything else. Cause I, I was pretty certain that if I took my time, I wouldn't get any closer to having an idea how to do it. And so mm. better to, to dive in. Um, and so dive in, I did, um, you know, he, he kind of added, you can change any lines you want, change any words you want. And so I got up and, Maybe change a few things and had, had the idea of you know the dog being somewhere and and, and it maybe coming up, but it was it was it was mainly a nightmare. But I got a couple of laughs from from the back from the third years, and and I think the only the only achievement I had was that the last line was um, he he calls her you know the climactic line is he he calls her um, a babbling old witch a babbling old witch is the final line you babbling old witch. And off I would go, and I managed by the end to change the line to "barking old bitch," um, and mm. and I was pleased with that. And it, and it, it, it got it was a claptrap. It got me a laugh at the end, at least from mm. the people at the back. And and Christopher was smiling when I sat down, but the rest was a haze. I remember the end. I mean, the rest was just, you know, 
I'll do it because you asked me to, but if I could shrink or disappear, I'd, I'd prefer that. Um, but when I sat down with a smile and with the laugh kind of ringing at the back, um, I, I was feeling kind of okay. And then I got the, you know, the not quite the third degree. Then, then you get the interview, which historically has, has been infamous. It wasn't too bad. Well, tell me a bit more about that. Well, again, Christopher would kind of pass around to, to, to the others. Uh, the, the thing that, that struck me was, was Yat, again, who I didn't know who he was, didn't know anything about him, this kind of rather slight-built elderly man. Um, and he, they asked me at one point you know, if, the, if I'd seen anything I liked recently at the theatre, and I mentioned that I'd enjoyed The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui at, at The National, which had Auntie Sher in it. Um, and, uh, and, and then, yeah, you know, which I say I came to discover was something he, would, he kind of would get fixated on something. Um, and he said, well, who, who is, who is that about? And I said, well, it's a, you know, a take on, on Hitler. It's, you know, set in Chicago, but you know, the idea is of course, Arturo is Hitler. Oh, but no. And he kept, he kept insisting on, on it being somebody else. And I was confused by this. Um, um, and again, it was it was a misreading, and so so I had one of those occasions in 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 an interview where I couldn't answer a question, but I think I was being honest and saying I, I I'm sorry I don't know you know what who you're referring to or what you know what it is you're you're describing, um, and I kind of went on with everything else, um, and and then as I got up at the end to go, he he said he he mentioned Mussolini and he was taking the idea of of the italian name the Arturo Ui. um he wasn't saying it wasn't hitler um he was just throwing into the mix this again my my reading of it the addition that it's also a mussolini and it's an an, an italian world that is being explored albeit in chicago albeit in iambic pentameter from brecht and everything um but uh, but i i found his kind of kind of probing good rather than bad and the one thing i would say as i left the room it was the only audition i did um during that that run where i thought oh god i think they've seen me they've got my number um for good or for bad whatever that may be that it was the only one where i I really felt that i had expressed and exposed both in the acting and in the conversation with them all um a truthful version of me i remember my, my first audition was at rather um, and and they were really lovely and, and friendly. And I foolishly went away thinking, oh, they must have liked me. And I realised, no, they were just they were just very polite. You know, they just they, that 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 was the demeanour. I, I couldn't read the mask. And so, you know, I think they they had very quickly discovered that I was not for them. You know, and I'm sure I was poor. It was say my first ever audition. And so so but but I so I'd learned on this journey that that the superficial only goes so far. And and here I again I felt I left it out there. I you know some of me was expressed. And I remember walking around London before going home. Back on the I, I went into central London, which I'd been looking forward to beforehand because I that was what I did. I'd go to Oxford Street and buy records or whatever it was. That was my my standard thing. And I remember just being in the days and going to all my my old haunts and you know looking at but not absorbing anything. And and it was the the one time where I kind of thought, oh my god, this is absolutely extraordinary um and i hope i get it and then lo and behold tuesday morning that's how quick things were i was walking down the stairs to go to college um and in those days the post came early um that seems 
definitely a 20th century thing. Um, and I was coming down the stairs and my mum said, here's one, you know, and there was an envelope from Drama Centre mm. handed to me. Again, I, I was used to getting these envelopes and them saying, you know, unfortunately on this occasion, or a, a couple of times um, I, you know, I, I got recalls at Arden, I got recalls at Lambda, um, two recalls at, 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 at Lambda. But this was a, you know, we'd like to offer you a place. Um, and so, yeah, I can... I'm sure this is true of most people. I can tell you that exactly where I was on the steps of, you know, coming down mm. and, and reading this and knowing, knowing that I had an option. Um, and, and in my heart of hearts, I was pretty certain that if I got any other options, that this would be the place um, because it was, it was somehow the one that, that meant more to me again. And, and the research I had begun to do, um, from the prospectus and beyond was, you know what, this is, this is it. And Simon Keller's book, I can't tell you if I, if I'd read it yet, but I certainly had way before I, I actually rocked up at the door. This is all January. I got off the place in January. So obviously I wasn't going to start until September, but, um, and yeah, somewhere in that I, I read Simon's book and, and him saying that, you know, places like Rada seemed like holiday camps and this place seemed a bit like a concentration camp. And again, some <laughs> masochistic tendency in me and him and, and many others before and since was, well, we kind of want that or we maybe we need that. I think that's probably our, our, our fancy. You know, we need a good kick in. You know, um, again, it turns out not to be the case that that's what they do. And I've sat on that panel subsequently when Christopher would ask, you know, what are you looking for here? And and a word that did come up quite a bit was discipline. Um, and strangely, again, being disciplined, to which he would normally answer, well, you've got to provide that. We can't. Um, which is, I think, a good feint, a good, a good you know, um, they, they did. I mean, they, they, there was a rigor and, and a demand being made, but ultimately you could stand or fall based upon your discipline, your personal discipline. Um, and I think he was just trying to poo-poo them. Uh, uh, and their masochistic tendencies. I think he he, he wasn't after a, you know a room full of masochists. However, um, he could come across sometimes. Um, I don't think I really was, but I certainly wanted rigor. I, I've always felt that if I was going to do something, do it properly. Um, and it felt like this was a school that would demand that doing it properly. So that's brilliant stuff. It's fascinating. Um... Really fascinating. I never knew about the I, people from the drama center always seem to operate out of a place of faith. That's the thing that's strange in British theater because, of course, there are all kinds of wonderful actors and all kinds of wonderful places and all kinds of wonderful teachers. But drama center people, and from when I first started meeting them as a young actor, have this funny kind of glowy thing, which in some ways is a bit sort of annoying and in another way makes you intrigued and slightly jealous. So I mean, a bit like the kind of the, the Rada confidence, there's sort of, I was sort of, there's sort of the Rada confidence, there's the sort of the drama center um, faith. And, and it's sort of, when you described sort of the, the church and the dais and, and people, it was like the last supper almost only with seven rather than, <laughs> that, rather than that's 12. The, the, what it looked like, you know, and, it, and yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I know there were seven, it, it could have easily been 13. <laughs> you know, it it, yeah, it yeah. felt like this was yeah. what we were going here. Yeah. So maybe that's, so there you go. Isn't that, isn't that curious about things, mm. but let's, let's, so now James, am I right in saying you're, you're one of the people who, who sort of holds as a te as a teacher and in you Yat's work. So are there others? I mean, I, we don't have to get lost in that, but, but I, my sense is that, is that you're certainly a kind of a principal um, inheritor or, or applier of, of, of Yat's work. Is that true? Is that it's something, is that an accurate I mean, there, there are others 
um, across the years, because of course he, he taught for you know a number of decades, and so various people, you know, leave at various times and and, and go off and and either immediately or sometime down the line bring it to teaching, bring it to their teaching, whether it's uh, just an extra string or whether it's the the specialty. Uh, I guess that the position I hold is being the last one, um, you know, the, mm. the, the the guy at the end, quite literally at the end. Um, and so there was a, a more, I hesitate to say fi- official, but there was there was a very clear kind of passing of, of the torch um, that he was very keen on um, and hadn't been hitherto. I mean, th- th- he was very protective of, of the work. And whilst he had, you know, vigour and, and blood running through his veins, um, he wasn't about to give it up or give it over to anyone. So again, the, the people who, who may be totally eligible for it were never handed it because it, it it was bloody well his um and and because i knew him for the last 10 years of his life from from the moment i i began training in 1992 um i was headed three years there and and i was and i was invited back very quickly um obviously i graduated in 95 and i and i taught my first class in the beginning of 97 um and then stop start stop start and then taught in earnest um without stop from 98 um, and so I was, uh, but even in those, in those, the tiniest of gap between 95 and 97, I'm seeing, yeah, I'm speaking to, yeah, I'm coming back to the school a bit. Um, and we were, were in conversation. Um, and, and then obviously it became very clear, um, that I was going to come teach alongside him, assist him. Um, and then when he retired and people can't see, I'm doing air quotes. I don't like to do air quotes. Uh, retired was something that that happened to them rather than was a choice of any sort. Um, they were forced to retire from Drama Centre. Um, he retired in 2001 um, and was was dead by the following summer, by June 2002, within an academic year, within a school year, which uh, now doesn't seem much of a surprise. Um, uh, because there was nothing for him to do, there was nowhere for him to go. Um, I, I saw him a lot in that in that final year, but I remember going to his and Christopher's house just before Christmas, um, and him or his oh well, James, I'm I am going to die soon. To which I immediately said, oh no, yeah, of course you're not. You're you're full of life, you're full of vigor. But back of my head, I'm going well. Once you've said that, once that that kind of choice has occurred, um, then then we will see. And lo and behold, that. You know that played out to be true. Um, I do believe. I know Christopher always believed that were were yet still at work. Not that he would live forever, but but that it, it would have been extended. That 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 his his life. We had a really nice system. The final three years of of Yet's teaching, I was alongside him um, and kind of carrying the the load. I was in every class that he taught, which mainly for second years, and I taught all the first year classes and would hand the students over to him. And 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 of course, what it meant was I continued my apprenticeship and I was very I would have been very happy to have extended that for another year another two years another four years however however long that would have been um and so yeah when it was handed to me lock stock and barrel um I say it was not something that that I was necessarily planning on so soon um but Mm. yeah that occurred but again I was lucky enough at least for that first year when I had the whole load on my shoulders he was still there to, to talk to and to ask questions of and, and, you know, and he would always, you know, give me huge amounts of advice. But yeah, so the, the, 
the, the shortened version is I was Johnny on the spot. Um, I was the guy at the time that clicked with the app, clicked with the work, um, and, you know, was, was kind of there to sort of step in. And, and you had to prove yourself. They yet never suffered fools um, very gladly. And so, so you, you know, proof of the puddings in the eating, you know, if, if I, if I didn't teach the students to a degree, especially as I was passing them on to him, they, he was going to inherit them. Um, then, then I would have been out on my ear pretty sharpish. So tell us, um, Yas and, and Laban are, are sort of synonymous. Those, those, those two teachers line up together. Yes. So can we, can we trace, um, the journey from, from Laban's work, I suppose, post-war Laban comes over to Britain, um, early in the, in the 19, mid 1930s. Was it before the actual outbreak? I of think war? it was, I think again, you know, the, everyone's escaping, everyone's getting out of Dodge before it, it kicks off and he ends up over here. Yatta ends up um, in South America during the war. So, so Laban's in, Laban's in, in London, Britain, Dartington, Dartington London? I, wherever I believe, uh, to begin with, le- later, um, when, when Yatta was working for him, it was Adelston in Kent. Yatta mm. sent oh, me a letter that Laban sent him um, which I which I I still have, which has you know the address of the Laban Institute or whatever, whatever it was called, whatever he called it at that time, um, which was in Adelston in Kent. So a train journey out of London. James, I won't. I won't we, if you say no, we'll cut this. But I wonder if you could, could you scan that letter and could we make that the kind of the the cover of this podcast? We, we can. Or is there a... I, I, I have it here uh, somewhere, um, and he he rather sweetly he he sent it to me as a huge surprise. Um, not the, not the first tiny bit of teaching I did, but, but the second time when I taught for, for some chunk, um, because he was very ill. Um, and so I kind of was kind of parachuted in to, to take over, to end, you know, the year's work. Uh, um, and, and once I did that, uh, and thankfully he was on the mend, he'd gone through chemo. Uh, one day I woke up again to this beautiful big envelope uh, with nothing from Yat at all, just mm-hmm. this copy of um, this letter that the Laban had sent to Yat. And then, of course, when I spoke to Yat and thanked him, he was he was basically saying, um, Laban handed the work to me, I'm handing the work to you. Um, what was lovely about it was we still had another three years of teaching together at that point, which was 1998, and then another year of, of his life beyond that. But, but at that point, he... Because he'd been very ill, I mean, again, mortality starts to threaten. Um, and it was one of the things that he would always tell, the stories he would tell about Laban to me. Um, he, Laban seemingly was aware of his mortality at the point at which, and, he, and yet would very kind of humbly, uh, and he, he could be beautifully humble, sometimes falsely humble, um, but, but he, also, I, he would always say, I have no idea why he chose me. So you do not need to know why I have chosen you. Um, and and so there was there, there was this idea. I had no idea why he chose me, but but I guess it was okay, you know. I, and 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 it's certainly true that Laban chose him for an area of the work. I mean, there are many um, inheritors of of Laban's work. Again, some he probably did choose, some he wouldn't have chosen, but but that came through his exposure to him and to his teaching. Um, and the vast majority of which, of course, are, are movement practitioners, and quite understandably so. Um, yet mm. took that strand 
thoroughly into acting drama, narrative drama. Mm. So let's assume, let's assume there are there are some people listening to this podcast who who don't have command of um, who don't know who Laban is and don't know who certainly don't know who Yat is and possibly even don't know who um, who you are. So um, starting with Laban, and I, I, we we can get we can get deep pretty quickly because I think probably lots of people listening to this podcast do have some sense. But just 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 to bring people with us, just tell me a little bit about. Laban's work, so a kind of a, an an entry level guide to to Laban, and then what happens towards the end of his journey, and how that then moves into Yat's work. Absolutely, yeah. The, the kind of in a nutshell version, uh, Rudolf von Laban, I believe sometimes, uh, but Rudolf Laban, an Austro-Hungarian, um, regarded as kind of one of the, the architects of modern movement um, in the twentieth century. Uh, there's strands of expressionism that come through this dance. Yat would always be keen to, to highlight that. Um, but certainly the idea of expression, um, pressing out. And so this, this idea of inners and outers in dance was there. Uh, movement and meaning is something that, that would be at the heart of Rudolf Laban. So he, he broke movement and dance down into its constituent parts in order that you could put it back together again. There's a, a, a strand that's dance notation, um, the idea of notating as you would pre-video, um, notating a dance the way you notate music so that it could again be, be re-explored, um, re-choreographed after the fact. Um, that may be a strand that is is, is, is less pursued now. Um, but certainly uh, his his life was exploring movement, expression, impulse, all of these things. Um, and there's lots that's become very commonplace. I mean, there's not many dance or movement academies which wouldn't at the very least pay lip service. Uh, he's, and he's become, he's become a title rather than a, a person's name. Um, in acting terms, you get Meisner, and most people don't even think of Sanford Meisner, Sandy Meisner. They just say, oh, Meisner technique. Um, and Laban has become a, a big catch-all. Um, and say so most people who are, explore movement in this day and age um, at the very least, would use some of his terminology, um, motion factors, weight, space, time, and flow. The, the terminology gets warped and changed, so some people use it without necessarily um, giving credit, uh, or, or it's just become it's disseminated throughout, and and therefore is kind of part and parcel of of a of a regular language. Um, and more and more, um, he's appeared at, at drama schools. Again, first and foremost in movement classes because those movement practitioners would go there and it's a, a great way of exploring the body um, and you know creating techniques and study that that helps expand the expressive instrument of of the body um, it's definitely expanded into voice um, because i guess the the heart of the work that most people are aware of are what mo most people call the efforts um interesting i would was introduced to them by yeah as working actions and i would still introduce them as working actions because effort has a particular meaning um that it has, has has kind of disappeared from how most people you know when they employ the efforts but it's a way of breaking movement into let's say the different types of action or movement you can do and there's phrases that people know punching and pressing and slashing and ringing and dabbing and flicking sometimes they'll use thrusting instead or they use this or that um but but uh that that was, I guess, the easiest, most transferable area of his work um, and is still very commonplace and damn useful. And again, you can add it to vocal applications. You can certainly add it to any movement class um, and is a kind of entrance level Laban for most people. Um, 
but of course he was still developing and and the area that that yat kind of inherits or takes and runs with is an area called movement psychology which was uh, created by Laban with a, with a guy who, who rarely gets a mention, William Carpenter, an Irishman called William Carpenter, the kind of forgotten man, um, uh, who's, I think, way with words is really powerful. And of course, the only English speaker amongst the, the, the trio that I tend to reference, Laban, Carpenter, and Malmgren, yet. Um, and he brought a bit of Carl Jung to the equation and movement psychology i always try to describe it, it you know it, it does what it says on the tin it tries to connect movement physical manifestation of things to psychology uh, the the inners the inner impulses sensations um uh thoughts feelings all of those things um uh and and how they get expressed and of course the idea being it's a it's a two-way street that movement can and does inspire psychological things and of course we understand that our psychology leads to a physical expression um, and if you could somehow marry those two things together the outer to the inner the inner to the outer explain it break it down and that's definitely what Laban and Carpenter are attempting to do you you may be able to see a way through this kind of chaos um, and and they were making these these links the thing about movement psychology is Pretty much, it's worth saying it was unfinished and unpublished, and probably in 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 any real form by Laban untaught. Um, that that you wouldn't expect there to have been big classes in it. Um, there's lots of stories about them working on things, and and they were called tables at one point because they put different things on different tables. Um, but that later on cubes appear. Um, but ultimately, it were it became a a glossary of terms. They would kind of very grandly, you know, a, a glossary of terms as employed in movement psychology. The irony of that being that it was probably not ever employed in movement psychology. It was the in the future this would be a nice glossary of terms, an A to Z um, of definitions of what this movement psychology would be. And it included, say, the bedrock of earlier Laban, some of which, of course, was published and was disseminated and, and shared, most importantly, the working actions or the efforts. But it goes much further than that into psychological typology and the idea of psychological types. The, the interesting thing for us in drama and for Yak is the word character never appears. The word character doesn't appear because they're not writing for the stage. It's not being designed for drama. It's, it's, it's exploratory and it's explanatory of human behavior, human physical manifestation of psychological things. Um, so just, just briefly, briefly, James. So William, William Carpenter meets, meets Laban um, and there's some sort of stories. Am I making up that that they stayed? One of them stayed in the caravan, or is there some? Um, yeah, some yeah, there's, thing there's, there's truth there. I, I think that William Carpenter stayed in a caravan or something on the site. Uh, at this point, it certainly was Alston Kent. Um, the, my understanding is that that William Carpenter, highly brilliant mind, um, had some sort of nervous breakdown, um, went into Jungian psychoanalysis. Um, uh, and and this is where the Jung kind of elements start to creep in, um, was obviously rather besotted by all of this and at some point sent qu- quite sensibly to movement classes, get into your body, you know, ex- explore that. And so lo and behold, he sometime, somehow ends up 
with Laban exploring his body, you know, for health purposes, if, if as much anything else. Um, and Laban certainly was concerned by the impact of industrialization on the human body, the human animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of this was a, a corrective. A lot of the work he was exploring was a corrective to this automated existence we were having and, and, and what, what reductive impact that may have uh, on the human's expression. Um, and maybe you say even their psychological well-being. Um, and so all of these things kind of came together, married together, and and Carpenter became one of Laban's late great but relatively unsung collaborators. Nearly all the other collaborators were, were pure movement practitioners or went on to. And when? Are we talking 1950s? We're talking 1950s. We're talking 1950s. 1950s. Um, and, and I would put it at this point, not the Dartington Hall days, but but the Adelston Kent days. Um, and, and he would go, and I say a lot of the language – say, migrated from Jung. I mean, at, at, at the heart of movement psychology is this link between, I, me- I mentioned the, the emotion factors on the outside, the movement factors of weight, space, time, and flow, that we manifest ourselves, um, and we move, our motion could be seen to have a degree of weight to it. Um, uh, it obviously moves through and in space, spatial relationships. It has a timing, a rhythm to it. And of course, it has a flow, whether that flow is of ease or, or awkwardness. Um, and these are wonderful physical descriptors. Um, movement psychology really links those to what they call the mental factors, which they completely co-opt from Carl Jung, um, sensing, thinking, intuiting, and feeling. Um, and, and they even come in that order. So somehow sensing, the mental factor of sensing is going to be linked to Laban's idea of weight in motion, um, to thinking, to space, that we think in space, intuiting to time, because, of course, it it somehow is experiential, it has a memory and, of course, a potential intuitive future, Um, and feeling to flow, that that when we're feeling great, we have ease, free flow. Um, When we're feeling awkward or tense or anything in that area, then, then our feelings will lead to us being awkward or bound in our flow. Um, That's... It's not pure Jung, but certainly the terminology is Jungian. Um, and th- again, they, they they take it, they adapt it. I think they s- simplify it for, for purposes. Um, uh, but it's it's still there. And I would argue that William Carpenter brings that to the equation. Um, and I say in a lot of the, the beautiful descriptions um, that appear in, in the work, like free adapting, free flow is described as having a streaming, unarrestable fluidity of movement. I reckon William Carpenter wrote that, and that bound adapting mm. or bound flow yeah, has is arrestable at any moment with a constant readiness to stop. Um, mm. Again, I don't think Laban wrote the poetry of those uh, descriptions. I'm pretty certain William Carpenter did, and there's many more besides. Um, the, the final kind of anecdote, funny story about Carpenter, when we bring it to Yak Malmgren, is – Yap Malmgren, I don't believe, ever had a conversation with him. Again, from his mouth to, to my ears and, and, and now to yours, um, Yap, Yap said that obviously he was back and forth. He was teaching classes for Laban at Laban's place in Adelston and going back and forth. This was once he'd retired from, from dancing. You know, age and injury gets to just about every mover um, and it had got to him. And so he'd, he'd already started to, to explore teaching, um, both teaching dance and choreographing, and also, of course, already teaching acting. He was exposed to acting from a very young age. and But here he was hanging with Rudolf Laban, 
And Laban kept saying to him, oh, you, oh, you must meet Carpenter. You must meet Carpenter. And, and yet, um, being the kind of rather snobby Swedish man that he was, when he, Carpenter was pointed out to him, Carpenter uh, used to always wear kind of overalls um, and quite possibly, as you mentioned, maybe lived in a caravan on the site. Um, and, and so snobby yet thought that he was a carpenter. He basically thought he was the odd job man <laughs> on the estate. And so, so when I'm talking, oh, you must meet him. Yeah, was like, why would I want to meet the carpenter? Um, and and so, so he, he never conversed with this probably rather brilliant man. Um, and then one day he said, Laban came to him in great distress because Carpenter had died. Um, and this is where those, you know, intimations of mortality creep in um and at this point says what will i do you know he was my great collaborator he's the only one who understood this work and i I could work with and somewhere around this point whether mythologized by yat or not um he hands over the work you know it could have been that day that that he hands over in in plastic bags um all these kind of notes and 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 images again diagrams of cubes and such like and gives them to yat to you know you do it you take this on see what you can do with it and again yat would say humbly would so I, I don't know why he chose me, but he chose me. And he certainly did. That did take place. There was a handing over of, of this work. It's worth, therefore, pointing out that, that in this story, Yak never gets taught it. Yak doesn't, you know, go and either talk to Carpenter or, or for any length of time um, have classes with Lab and teaching this work. So, so the, one of the great brilliances of Yap was to take something which was seemingly in, in, entirely theoretical. Of course, he's been exposed to great movement and he did know Laban's movement in other ways, um, but to kind of lift it off the page, um, find a, a narrative through it that wasn't A to Z, which is no kind of narrative at all in terms of your ability to, to develop a course of study, um, but to, to amplify it, to uh, explore it and, and to make it ultimately practical. Um, uh, he would say, again, the mythologized version of it, that, that he's on the train home from Adelston in Kent and looking through all of this stuff. And this, he liked the idea of a penny drop, the penny drop moment. An epiphany occurred where he looked at all this and realized that its applications were great for humanity, you know, for exploring movement, meaning, um, and, and us. But actually it was ideal, perfectly um, designed for the stage, for drama, for theater. Um, and Brilliant. and um, that's somewhere around here, the word character starts to appear. So that's the end of the first part of, of my conversation with, with James about the work of Yat Malmgrim. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I was going to release this on Friday as one big um, edition, but I'm just way too excited. So I'm going to release that today and then part two will come out on Friday. So keep a keep an ear out, keep an eye out for that. Um, and thank you to James. And I hope you're all having a good week. Talk to you soon. <laughs>